0: You are listening to the Catholic Christianity podcast with Deacon Peter Pelican. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to Catholic Christianity. Uh, If you haven't already, we'd love you to like and subscribe. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and on our website, catholicchristianity.org. If you've got comments or questions, feel free to get in there and, and get the conversation started. In our last few episodes, we've been talking about whether or not there's a reason to believe in the existence of God. We looked at whether science has disproved God, whether science can disprove God. We've looked at the nature of truth, and we've looked at three logical reasons from natural revelation, so reasons that don't require faith or religious belief or scripture or tradition, as to why God exists. And so... On those three arguments, we looked at first cause, how did we get here if not by the power of a God, a divine being. We looked at intelligent design, how do we make sense of the intelligent design in the universe if there is no intelligent designer. And we looked at Pascal's wager, that is to say it's a good bet to believe that there's a God because if we're right, we've got everything to gain and nothing to lose. In today's episode, we're going to look at three more arguments for the existence of God, which again sit in that natural revelation space where there are arguments that don't require religious belief or scripture. Now, before we get into those arguments, I want to touch again on something I said in our last episode, and I was quoting uh, Blaise Pascal, who said, In faith, there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. And so, again, I remind us that you and I are not robots. Uh, We don't just collect data and then agree with the data and just do what the data tells us to do. We're subjects and we have predispositions. And so it means that you and I are hearing the same arguments in different ways. And so it's not even that the argument has changed for someone who believes it or doesn't believe it or agrees with it or who doesn't agree with it. The argument is the same, but the receiver is different. And so before we even listen to an argument or a reason, we have to ask ourselves a few questions. Are we open to the truth no matter where it leads? Are we open to the possibility of there being a God? Do we desire what is true no matter what? There is great freedom in life in discovering the truth and living in a way that is in line with that truth. And there is great turmoil and restriction, if you like, um, a lack of freedom when we create false worlds for ourselves, where we live a life that's built on presuppositions that are false. And so our goal, whether we're religious or not, is to discover the truth and to live in that truth. So with that said, take a moment to consider your own predisposition are you open to hearing something new today and with that we'll get into our three arguments the first one i want to look at today argument number 1 is an argument from conscience now conscience is a really interesting concept and it's built this argument's built on the premise that you and i everybody knows that we are obligated to do and be good we're obligated to be good people. That's an an intrinsic sense that every person has. Now, whether they do and do the right thing or not is another question, but the fact that we know that we ought to do what is right is very interesting. And it's a question as well in terms of how do we have this, where does this sense of conscience come from And you don't have to be religious, I'm not talking about religious guilt or anything where you feel bad because the Bible says, I'm talking about anyone anywhere in the world has this sense that we ought to do the right thing. Now, we may not always agree on what's right, but we have this sense of obligation to live in a right way. Now, to articulate this point in clearer terms than I can, I want to quote from C.S. Lewis and from one of his um, most important books called Mere Christianity, and I like to just read from the text with these books because they're such excellent books. And if I pull one up um, to share with you, it's kind of my endorsement as well, saying, look, if you want to know more, read these books, check them out. C.S. Lewis is a um, an, a sage when it comes to understanding the Christian tradition. Um, and he unpacks the, the argument from conscience or the moral argument in the very first chapter of Mere Christianity. So he says this, Think of a country where people were admired for running away from battle. Or where a man felt proud for double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might as well try to imagine a country where two and two made five. Men have differed as regards what people you ought to be unselfish to whether it be your own family, or your fellow countrymen, or everyone. But they have always agreed that you ought not to put yourself first. Selfishness has never been admired. And so in the whole um, chapter there, he makes the case that says there is a kind of a universal morality that we share, a, a universal conscience, where though there are differences about various aspects of morality, we all know certain things, and we all know that we, sh- we ought to live in a certain way. And the question mark, of course, is where does that come from? Lewis uh, goes further in his book at the end of this first chapter. He says, these then are the two points I wanted to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. In other words, We just know we ought to do it, and even when we pretend like that's not there, we have this sense that we have to do it anyway. Secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave in that way. That is to say, we know how we ought to behave, and we also know that we don't always behave the way we ought. They know the law of nature, or the sense of universal morality, and they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. So Lewis points out that we all share this conscience and he refers to it as natural law and he explains that in that chapter. And so the question is, where does conscience come from? How do we explain this phenomenon? You see, humanity is different to the animal kingdom in the aspect of conscience. Let me explain that. Animals learn and act by instinct not by conscience. So when a hungry lion sees a deer go past, it's not thinking, should I go and tear that deer apart? That wouldn't be a very kind thing to do. I think I'll just let the deer go by. No, it's like, it's hungry, it's starving, it sees the deer, it sees food. If you've seen Madagascar, Madagascar there's this hilarious scene where all the, the lion can see when he looks at these other animals that were previously friends as just big pieces of steak. And so the lion acts by instinct chases the deer, rips it apart, has no sense of moral obligation and doesn't feel guilty for doing that. Whereas you and I, we know there's something wrong with tearing apart our fellow human beings, right? Uh, Even if it's at our own advantage because we have conscience. You see, one of these uh, ways to distinguish between instinct and conscience um, is to think about even when you wake up in the morning, this morning I, my alarm went off at quarter to five, I like to go cycling in the morning. And so my instinct said, roll over, hit snooze, stay in bed, you need sleep. But my conscience said, get up, get on your bike, you need exercise, you need to get out and stretch, go. And so my conscience is telling me to go and my instinct is telling me to stay. And so conscience tells us at times to do things against our instinct, because our instincts are just kind of like the animal kingdom, whereas our conscience gives us this sense of, no, I ought to do that even though I feel like doing that. Now, the problem that conscience creates for us um, from a philosophical perspective is just how do we explain that phenomena? And the argument from conscience in terms of the existence of God is to say that One of the most reasonable and likely explanations for this universal sense of conscience that is innate to the human person is that there is a divine being, a transcendent being, that has placed this into humanity in order to help us live in a way that works, to live in a way where we properly relate to each other and to the world. So the fact that we have conscience And this sense of what we ought to do suggests that there is a God who has placed this sense within us. How else do we explain conscience if there is no God? The second argument today is the argument from desire. Now, this argument requires a little bit of self-awareness and and a little bit of honesty um, with ourselves, and so how... um, how compelling you find this argument will depend on how open you are to uh, acknowledging this sense in your own life. But here we go, see how you go. There's three premises in this argument. Premise number one, every natural innate human desire has a corresponding object. Now when I say innate, what I mean is that it's, it, every human shares that. So I talked about you know, cycling this morning on my bike the desire to cycle is not an innate human desire, even if it should be, um, perhaps it should be, um, because we don't all share it. Some of you are going, what on earth are you doing getting up at quarter to five to ride a bike? I couldn't hear anything worse. That's not an innate desire. I desire to do that, many people don't. It's not innate. When we say innate, it's a desire that all of us share. And so what I'm thinking of here is hunger. You and I both get hungry and the hunger is a desire for food, and so the innate desire is hunger, and hunger is a desire for food, and food is the object that satisfies that desire. The same is true for tiredness tiredness is a desire for sleep, and sleep is the object that satisfies that desire. Thirst is another desire that's an innate human desire, and it's for liquid and water, then, or other kinds of liquid are the object that satisfies that desire. So if there's a human desire that we all share, there must be a corresponding object. So that's premise number one. Premise number two, this is the one that requires a bit of you know, self-searching, is that there exists in us a desire for something that nothing on earth can satisfy. So there's a, there's a, a desire in us or a hunger in us that we can't find an object for in time and space like a natural thing that fixes this desire now this idea of desire is proven by the lack of satisfaction and contentment that humanity has with what we already have and it's particularly pronounced in the first world where you know most of us who live in the first world you know in in rich countries uh, comparatively speaking, on a global scale, extraordinarily rich—you know—in the top ten percent of all of humanity, uh, in terms of how much wealth that we have, in countries like America and Australia and Europe and et cetera, et cetera. And yet, we're also often the most discontent. Con- we're often the most discontent, and we often have the highest rates of suicide. So, even though we have all this stuff. There's an unhappiness and a discontent that is deep within us because even though we can have a whole lot of stuff, we can have nice cars and beautiful houses and we can have full bank accounts, it doesn't fulfill this deep, mysterious longing in us that nothing in this world can fulfill. So think about that for a moment. Do you share that longing? Are you 100% content? And my own experience with that is that even in the greatest moments of, in life, the greatest joys, the greatest happinesses, uh, there's a pinch of it's still not enough. It's never finished. It's like you're nearly satisfied, but you're never totally satisfied. And so there's this sense that it's just, the world is amazing and there's so much that we can have, but there's got to be more. And so the argument then, assuming you agree with the second uh, premise that there is this innate desire in humanity for something that nothing in the world can satisfy, is answered then by the third premise, which is that there must be something that can satisfy this desire, this deep, mysterious longing. And that thing, the object of that desire, is actually for God. Now think about that for a minute. If there is a God and God is responsible for bringing the world into being, creating the universe, creating you and I, uh, giving us the ability to have conscience and relationships, and to bring all of that, all of that, all that's good in the world into being, then there's some sense in the fact that in humanity, if we do come from God, that we would desire God, and that we would have a hunger to be reconnected with the source of our life being God. And so this argument from desire requires a little bit of honesty, a little bit of openness, a willingness to accept premise two that there is this innate desire and that we can try and find satisfaction and we can try and find fulfillment in all kinds of things in life, but in the end it's never enough. And when we recognize that, we are able then to see that maybe there's something beyond time and space, beyond the world, that can satisfy that desire and maybe that thing is not just a thing, it's God. So, first argument, conscience. How do we explain conscience if there's no God? Second argument, desire. There's this desire in us that's beyond anything that nothing in this world can satisfy. That must be a desire for God, therefore there must be a God. Now, our final argument in this talk is a really simple one and a really straightforward one. And again, like the last argument, requires a little bit of honesty as well. And it's simply this, it's the aesthetic argument, and that's simply that there is beauty and goodness in the world, therefore there is a God. How else do we explain beauty and wonder and goodness if there is no God? Listen to the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Look at the beauty of a sunrise. Out of my morning ride, the sun's coming up. Uh, over Brisbane, it looked spectacular When you look at that, how do you explain that if it 's just an accident? The beautiful music or the voices of people like Adele or Stevie Wonder, or depending on your your, your musical style, the, the power that music creates, the wonder and the beauty that it creates. How do we explain the experience of that? The wonder of the stars at night? those of us who, have, who are parents you know i 've got five children, and you know walk into your children 's room at night, and just look over your little ones and run your hand down the side of their face. They are such beautiful, wonderful, incredible beings. And it's like, how do you come to terms with the wonder of these little lives that God has placed in our hands if there is no God? Is this this little person in front of me really just because of chance? The beauty and unfathomable mystery can only be explained by the existence of God. Now again, that argument requires some honesty and openness, and you'll either get that one, um, as Dr. Peter Kreef likes to say, you either get that or you don't. For some people, that's a compelling argument. And for others, it's not at all. I remember having a friend years ago in a, in a band I was playing in, and he didn't have a belief in God. And we talked through some of these arguments and some of these reasons, but it was this final argument that he could just see straight away. There's beauty in the world. He was an artist. He was someone who was an excellent painter. He could just see that straight away, and it just opened his eyes, um, lifted the shadows, and he was able to, to see the existence of God straight away. There's beauty in the world. Therefore, there's a God. If there is no God, how do we explain such wonder and such beauty in creation? So... In conclusion today, and then our challenge, I've given us three arguments for the belief in God. Number one, conscience. How do we explain this universal sense that humanity knows how we ought to live? How do we explain that if there is no God? It's not instinct, it's conscience. Where does conscience come from if there is no God? Secondly, we looked at the argument from desire. Every desire that's innate to humanity has an object, There's a desire in us that no object in this world can satisfy. Therefore, there must be a God who can satisfy that desire. And this argument is proven by our discontentment with all that the world offers and this deep, mysterious longing for something more than what we experience here on Earth. Finally, the aesthetic argument, the third argument. That is to see the wonder and beauty in the world in all the great things in this planet and to recognize that how else do we explain the wonder and mystery and beauty of all that is here if there is no God. In the last two uh, episodes, I've quoted Pascal, and I'll quote him again, in faith there's enough light for those who want to believe, and enough shadows who blind those who don't. My prayer is that, as we've talked about some of these arguments, that there will be enough light for you, and that in terms of your own will, There's a desire and an openness in your life and your heart to believe in the possibility of God. And when you find that openness in your own will, you'll be able to see the power of these arguments and open your heart and mind to the possibility that there is a God whom maybe it's possible to have a relationship with that God. Finally, I talked about St. Paul, and I talked about this in the end of the last um, talk, that for Catholics, for those in the Christian tradition who are listening to this, It can be really exciting to hear good, strong, reasonable um, arguments for belief in God. And the temptation can be to go out there and to try and find people to prove God's existence to. But of course, when Jesus walked the earth, he didn't say, go out into all the world and give them good logical reasons to believe in God. He says, they will know you are Christian, not by your incredible arguments, not by your... Your logic and your philosophy, but by your love. So by all means, share great arguments for the existence of God, but the Christian tradition calls us first to love, and so make sure that love is the foundation for all conversation, all dialogue, and all argument when it comes to um, defense of the Christian tradition. So our challenge today, um, a couple of things. First of all, whenever you get that sense of I shouldn't do that, or I should do that, or you, you, you're confronted with a moral decision. You're driving in your car and someone slows down in front of you and you want to beep your horn and yell something out or drive around them and uh, you know, have a few words or whatever it is. When you're confronted with those moral decisions and your, your instinct says, yeah, take it out on them and your conscience says, no, don't. Listen to those moments and recognize God in those moments where the conscience kicks in. When you're feeling those moments of discontentment where everything's great but it's still not enough and you've got all the things that you wanted and you were looking for and it's still not enough recognize the desire in your heart the deepest longing in your heart and that that longing can only be fulfilled by god and finally when you see beauty and wonder in the world, take it as an opportunity to see a God who is not a sky daddy looking to punish people, but who is a loving transcendent being who has created a universe that just calls out to his existence and reveals his beauty and wonder. Um, And so start to see God in those beautiful moments. Thanks for listening, I hope that's taken you forward in terms of your awareness of the existence of God and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. May God bless you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.